This is Leah Jones, Director of Financial Planning at Hightower Bethesda. Thanks for joining me today as I explore topics that I hope arm you with the ability to make smart financial decisions. This is Leah Jones from the Everything Money Podcast, and my guest today is Jeff Vale. Jeff is a founding partner and chief investment officer at Infinity Capital Partners. Infinity is a hedge fund manager that started managing capital in 2002 and currently has $750 million in assets under management. Prior to Infinity, Jeff was a senior analyst with Longbow Capital Management, a long, short equity hedge fund, so he has over two decades of experience in the hedge fund industry. Our conversation today is going to be an introduction to hedge funds, what they are, how they can be incorporated into an investor's portfolio, and understanding more about the media's portrayal of hedge funds. So Jeff, with that, let's get started with the basics, because I know this can be a very complex topic. So we're going we're gonna to call this Hedge Funds 101 and <laughs> just kind of go on that framework that the people that we're talking to in this particular podcast are either you know new to investing in hedge funds or have never invested in a hedge fund or have very limited knowledge about them. So can you talk to me about the history of the hedge fund industry and how and why it got started? Sure, Leah. Thanks again, and thank you for inviting me to this podcast. I'm delighted to be here this afternoon and talk about the hedge fund industry and you know answer some, some questions around the current state of the hedge fund industry. But I'll start with the history of it, which I think is very important because oftentimes hedge funds are you know portrayed a little differently in the media than really are in, in real in the real world. And I think it's helpful to understand that. Hedge funds were really, you know, it it came about really from a gentleman by the name of Alfred Jones from Australia. He was a money manager, and he was the first to really coin the term hedged fund. And what he did in 1949 was really create the first hedge fund structure, which he, he felt strongly that it was beneficial to his process to not only go long it was it was an equity strategy but go long buy stocks you know long term but also go against you know stocks or companies that he didn't like so he created the framework to have the very first long short equity fund and um he did this in a limited partnership uh which allowed him to participate in a a percentage of the profits, which is very key to understanding the history of hedge funds because it was the first kind of vehicle. uh, He still had to only have accredited investors as clients or investors in his fund, but it allowed him to you know, participate in, in the success or the failure of the fund. He had his own money in it. So, this structure, he, he actually ended up outperforming all of the kind of early long-only mutual funds at that time, and this structure gained a little bit in popularity. In fact, Warren Buffett used this structure early on in his investing career, and actually it allowed him to propel his wealth early on by sharing in the profits. His was more long-only uh, as opposed to long-short, but as 
the success of Alfred Jones's first hedge fund became evident. It attracted some of the early pioneers in the industry, such as George Soros and Michael Steinhardt. And they were the kind of early legends of the industry that, you know, created other strategies under this same kind of structure. So at the end of the day, to boil it all down, a hedge fund is is really just a legal structure, and it allows the manager to participate in some of the profits, d- depending on what the documents say. So some of these early managers did very well. They're very successful in m- managing different strategies, and I won't go into all the details of strategies and that type of thing, but as we kind of came through the 90s, it was still a very nascent, very small industry. And then as we came through the end of the 90s and into the early 2000s when the market corrected and the dot-com bubble burst, hedge funds, the ones that were in existence then, actually performed really, really well. And that was really the first downturn in the markets where it was very clear that the hedge fund model worked. And take it back to what Alfred Jones thought was beneficial is he was able to actually put more exposure into the markets at a lower risk profile because he borrowed against his long book and then put short positions on. So when the market corrects, you're protected theoretically with your short positions. So when hedge funds performed well in the early 2000s, it became popular to say that hedge funds were also called absolute return strategies where call it all weather strategies, call it, you know, make money in any kind of market was another phrase oftentimes thrown out. So it was really the dawn of the growth of the industry. Many hedge funds were born in the early 2000s and the industry grew significantly throughout 2000 you know, up till 2008, where 2008, as we know, great financial crisis, you know, hurt markets pretty badly, but it also hurt hedge funds. So we had an example of hedge funds really, by and large, not protecting capital. And there, I believe, is where kind of some of the negative, you know, angle or, or I guess negative, you know, perception in the financial press began. And it's kind of been that way ever since. So, you know, I think as we sit here today, the hedge fund industry is very mature. There's many, many different strategies. There's a lot of very large hedge funds. There's a lot of, in total number, there's a lot of hedge funds. And so, you know, you know, I think it's still the goal of any hedge fund is to protect capital when markets are very difficult and to make money in almost every environment. So, Jeff, I want to touch on a couple points because you talked about a lot of different things in that conversation. And so I just I want to clarify a, a couple things for our listeners. So the first one is you mentioned accredited investor. And the definition of this, just for anyone that hasn't heard this terminology, is I, I believe each kind of fund can define it a little bit differently. But the idea is that an investor in this type of product, so a hedge fund, would have to meet certain criteria either from an income perspective or from an asset perspective or maybe both. And so accredited investor generally is around $2 million net worth. Is that correct, Jeff? Yes, it's been defined that way. You're correct. 
on the income part too. So yeah, it's, it's a net worth of, of two million. I've, I've seen it defined as one million in some cases, depending on the vehicle. But that's right. And then the income test is two hundred thousand for an individual for two consecutive years, and yeah. or or I think three hundred for a married couple. Couple, yeah. So, and, and the idea behind this, so if you hear this terminology, accredited investor, the idea is the government wanted to lay some type of framework to identify an investor that would invest in a hedge fund as having some type of you know, qualitative factor for being able to invest in this thing. And then, of course, you know, in terms of how much they're investing in the hedge fund, there's guidance on that. So you can't generally put all of your net worth into, you know, one product and that type of stuff. But just wanted to clear that up in terms of what is an accredited investor and how that comes into play with hedge funds. Because I I believe almost every single hedge fund that exists does have some type of criteria that an investor has to meet. And some of them might be a, a little bit lower, but certainly a lot of them are, are even a lot higher than that. Yeah, so that's one thing I just want to clear up. And then the other thing I want to clear up for our listeners are on the concept of long short. So I know you're a hedge fund manager and you've been doing this for a long time, but for in kind of layman terms, long is what we all think of as traditional stock market buying. So you buy a share of whatever stock and you're buying it because you're hoping that the price of the stock goes up. And so effectively what a hedge fund manager calls that is being long the stock. You know, however you think about it is fine, but but uh, the technical word is long. Now the opposite of that is a short. So if you actually think that a company is overvalued and you know certainly you'll hear a lot of opinions out there about certain stocks that might be gotten ahead of their skis and really people are speculating that they're worth less than what they trade for today then the idea is that the price of the stock would go down and in that case how do you profit well you certainly don't profit if you are long or you hold the stock but you could profit if you were short and the price of the stock goes down. And that's really the only way you could profit is if you were short. So just want to clarify that as well, kind of long, short. Um, really, the hedge fund industry introduces this concept of short because in traditional investments like mutual funds or even ETFs, they either don't have the ability to go short at all or they have a lot more limited capabilities in terms of you know how they could express an opinion that something was going to go down. And so that's where I wanted to also get some clarification from you, Jeff, because you talked about the structure and you said, you know, really at the end of the day, a hedge fund is a structure and it has a great deal of latitude in investing. That's what, you know, we had talked about. And you had mentioned, you know, one of those things was in terms of how it takes profits. But can you just talk a little bit more about that concept? Sure. Yeah. In terms of the incentive fee, most hedge funds have a management fee and an incentive fee that is really tied to the performance of the fund in any calendar year. And it's important to also mention around, you know, shorting stocks in your example, Leah, is, you know, managers will do that if if they believe that there's something wrong with a company and they think the stock's going to go down, or they can also do it to hedge 
the portfolio against a general market drawdown. So there's a lot of different mechanisms, and that's where the word hedge really comes in to play. You want a hedge fund manager that actually does hedge and protects risk. So if they're doing their job, you know, hopefully, you know, they're performing at a level that's consistent with their mandate, which the legal document does give a lot of latitude to the manager, but it does outline what the strategy is meant to do. And there are many strategies out there. So how the manager gets compensated, and this is where we, you know, there are different opinions about this, but having the manager participate in the success of the fund, whether or not they can do it in in multiple ways. They can have their own money invested in the fund, which we prefer when we look at hedge funds. And then the incentive fee is the reward, I guess, for performing well. And that incentive fee is paid just one time per year, depending on the performance of the fund in, in a specific calendar year. But if the fund actually lost money in a year, there's what's called an a watermark or an underwater kind of calculation where in the subsequent year, there will be no performance fees until the investor is made whole on where the the last, you know, valuation was in terms of their basis in the fund. So it's basically preventing any kind of bad behavior around year after year. If you're if you have a losing year, you're underwater technically until you're back above that point where then the incentive fee can be calculated again. I hope that makes sense. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And and I know that sometimes, and this is again a kind of a portrayal um, by media, but there can be this fixation on that hedge funds cost so much money. Why would I want to do that? And you know, on the flip side, you have basically no commissions, zero commissions on trades and on traditional products like equities and ETFs and really low cost for mutual funds, et cetera, et cetera. I guess the way I think about it, and I usually discuss this with clients, is that you know, if somebody is providing value to you as the end client and they're enhancing your experience by being able to lower the amount of risk that you're taking and delivering on good returns, then it's probably worth the money, right? Versus kind of, okay, well, you could have a really low cost product, but maybe you can't handle the volatility. And so you're paying low in annual costs, but you're buying and selling at the wrong time. Or, you know, if you were to compare it over longer periods of time, it's not actually adding as much value as an active manager in the hedge fund space could. So, so, you know, I think it's important to understand hedge fund fees and that that is an important component, but also understand the good parts of it as well, as you pointed out, like the high watermark. So a hedge fund manager is not getting that extra incentive fees unless they're earning the return that they specified they were going to deliver to, you know, the shareholders. Right. So I think that was really helpful to kind of dive into a little bit. So shifting gears a little bit. I want to talk about and and use 2020 as the backdrop because I think that's all fresh in people's minds. But how did hedge funds do in 2020 and you know why why do you invest in them? Sure. Yeah. I think 2020 is a good example because it was obviously a bit of an outlier of a year with you know all kinds of things happening namely the pandemic that 
it, it caused heightened volatility in the market. So what we saw in the early part of the year, really beginning in February, is a lot of volatility. The market started selling off, and it really kind of accelerated in March of 2020. And hedge funds, by and large, did a very good job of protecting capital when the markets were down, you know, over 30% in a very short period of time. We had some of the fastest down and and largest down days in the history of, you know, the S&P 500. So it was a scary time and it really reinforced, I think, the benefits of having your principal or having your capital protected. And yes, you you may have lost a little bit of money. Uh, We saw hedge funds down a little bit in in March and actually mid-March, they were down, you know, a fraction of what, you know, the equity markets were down, but you know, it was it was a fairly shallow uh, drawdown. So it was, you know, reassuring to us um, with the managers that we invest in, where they were able to not only protect capital in March, but also position the firm or position their funds to take advantage of the many, many dislocations that occurred in that environment. And that's important because what the last thing a hedge fund manager wants to have happen is to be forced to sell. They'll sell on their own to lower their risk to, you know, if they feel like the markets are very difficult, they they do that on their own to, to be proactive. But if they're forced out of their positions, which can happen in very, very, you know, difficult situations, and we can talk about a few examples of those too that happened in 2021, but you actually want to be playing offense when others are playing defense. And we saw that play out in 2020. We saw it really play out in, in the end of March into April where the hedge fund managers we, we invest with were, you know, very, very active in trading different markets and really pivoting into certain markets that were, you know, very dislocated. And as a result, the performance was very strong throughout the balance of the year, while the markets, although they rebounded very strongly, there was still very heightened volatility throughout the year with pockets of continued sell-offs here and there. And, you know, the hedge fund industry in general performed very well through that, you know, very difficult environment. And I think that to, to kind of talk a little bit about what you mentioned earlier around kind of negative press around you know the industry up to 2020, it was not the best environment for hedge funds. It was a very low volatility environment. And in my opinion, there were too many hedge funds post 2008 that, you know, underperformed. So on the average, the hedge fund indices were the numbers were kind of very, very average or very below average compared to their history. So that's what the, a lot of the articles would focus on just the average performance of hedge funds. And it's very important to be with the, the right hedge funds and the ones that to your earlier point earn their fees. And at the end of the day, if they're delivering a net performance to you and it's a good number, you you don't, necessarily care as much about the fees that you're paying. So we went through that period and, and then we came into 2020 and, you know, it was, it was a validating year, I guess, for the for the industry because it was the first year where we saw the VIX go, you know, above 80 and all kinds of other, you know, dangers in the market came out and, and 
they did a very good job of managing risk. So another point I want to clarify for our listeners as well, who might not be as well versed with hedge funds, is that hedge funds have illiquidity. And so what what does that mean? Generally, hedge funds have different lockup provisions, meaning that they can't be redeemed on a daily basis the way that you would do you know, with a stock or a bond or anything that's readily tradable on a daily basis. Now, hedge funds are not as bad in terms of illiquidity as some other illiquid investments out there, but they generally have at least kind of a quarterly liquidity period, which means that you know, you could submit a redemption this quarter, but you won't actually be able to get your proceeds until the following quarter. And then oftentimes there is subject to some type of maximum amount that can be redeemed at a particular time. And again, this is really protection for everybody that's involved in the investment. So to your point, they're not stuck in a position where they have to sell fire sales, right? So selling at a bad time when the building is already on fire and nobody's going to pay a premium for it. And so the lockup provisions generally give the managers the ability to kind of recover from whatever event might have kind of triggered something in terms of people wanting to redeem their capital. So that's a really important kind of provision to understand about hedge funds is there is some illiquidity involved. And generally, that's a good thing. You just want to understand it when you get into it. And then I also love that you were talking about since 2008, there were there really aren't very many barriers to entry in the hedge fund industry, which means that you had all types of people setting up hedge fund shops and calling their, themselves a hedge fund. And so to your point, there was a lot of them. And what happens is over time, eventually those kind of get washed out. And, you know, I think the other challenge since 2008 is we've generally been in a, a very long, prolonged bull market, which has made beating equity returns very hard for anyone, really, and specifically the S&P 500. And so although the, the hedge funds still can, I, I saw it even as, as recent as the past six months, tend to still are getting more negative press than I think they should because a a lot of these articles are referencing what you're talking about, Jeff, which is underperformance, but they're looking at kind of this broad swath of managers. But, you know, they're not taking into account the next 10 years where it's hard to imagine we continue in this bull cycle and the S&P 500 type of returns that we've gotten. And this is precisely the time where hedge funds, when there is more volatility, more fluctuations in the market, where the right hedge fund manager, again, so someone that has a history, someone that has a tenure, someone that has a track record and has you know shown an ability to read into the markets and, and provide hedges at the right time, can actually add a lot of value. So with that being said, I, I do want to talk a little bit about the press. Specifically, there's a, a couple, I guess, you know, headlines that have been in the media that I think would be interesting to talk about. So let's start with GameStop. So the GameStop phenomenon, kind of the David and Goliath, Robin Hood, you know, taking over and bringing all these hedge funds to their knees. Um, I guess, again, you know, nice like kind of rhetoric for the media. But can you speak a little bit to that and its influence on hedge fund industry and, you know, any longer term concerns about that? Sure, yeah. The GameStop phenomenon was a very interesting, I think, lesson in kind of market dynamics. 
And it was a classic short squeeze, and I'll explain what that means. And you're right, Leah, it was a David and Goliath story for, it made a very, very good story for the press. And what happened was, in today's world, social media and, and the different platforms that are out there really allow for many individuals to kind of, you know, band together on various issues. And it was no different in this scenario where on a social site called Wall Street Bets, which is tied to Reddit. It it enabled a lot of individual investors who were trading their own money to kind of gather together, you know, in in the thousands, really, or even larger than that, accounts to go bet against some stocks that were very heavily shorted by some hedge funds. And so what that means is they could use the social media platform to discuss on message boards certain stocks. I'll I'll talk about GameStop because that's really the poster child for this event where, you know, GameStop had a very high amount of short interest, meaning there were a lot of institutions, mostly hedge funds, that were betting against it. And their thesis was purely fundamental that GameStop was a dead business and, you know, it was the blockbuster, I guess, of video game, you know, retail sales in stores and that kind of thing. When, and, and all that makes sense. And and that's purely, you know, what hedge funds try and do. They try and find broken, you know, companies that the equity could eventually go to zero and, and they make money on that. So, but these investors kind of got together and formulated a different thesis. And this is what makes markets, by the way, when you have different views, different opinions. And the buying pressure that came in from the retail side caused the game stock to go up dramatically. And in doing so, the hedge funds that owned or or shorted it were being forced to cover. And what that means is they have to go out and buy the stock to cover their short position. So when that started happening, put even more upward pressure on the stock price. And you saw, you know, in in GameStop's case, the stock, you know, went from, I think, $4 to over 400 midday, I think, back in January, at the end of January. So the story was that there were a number, I would say, a couple dozen large hedge funds that were short GameStop. And even if you have a 1% short position on and it's up, you know, 100%, that's really going to hurt your performance and probably cause you to bring your risk down across your whole portfolio. So that's what happened. And the headlines read, you know, that there were a number of very well-known hedge funds that put up really bad numbers in January as, as a result of this short squeeze. So it's it's really, in my opinion, a lesson of risk management. You know, I think that most hedge funds were completely unscathed by this, but the press jumped on it. And, you know, I think the hedge funds that were short GameStop really didn't pay attention as much as they should have to how crowded that trade was. And, and they certainly didn't anticipate a bunch of, you know, retail investors coming in and, and all joining forces to, to put significant buying pressure on it. So it was an interesting period of time. And I think a lot of hedge funds, even the ones that weren't involved in this, learned a very good lesson. 
and that is, you know, pay attention to what is going on out there at the retail level. And, and in today's world, Leah, you know, Robinhood and all these other platforms are making it easier and easier for individuals to trade and invest in stocks at, at very low, if not zero commission. And so this is something that hedge fund managers is going to necessarily bring a different awareness, do you think, than in the past? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I don't think it's going to prevent hedge fund managers from shorting stock. Oftentimes, the financial press will kind of put that in the context of it's a bad thing to short un-American, that kind of thing. I think that, you know, there's a reason why any investor, they don't have to disclose their short positions. They do have to disclose their long positions in their 13F filings. You know, in this case, you can get the data on the short interest. You just don't know, you know, who is shorting the stock. So if there's a stock that has a high level of short interest, that's probably a risk factor that you don't necessarily want to take on because I think the risk reward is is poor. But there are plenty of other companies that are larger, larger market cap that have problems where shorting it is a, is a very legitimate thesis. And, you know, hedge funds will continue to do that. But I do think they're going to be much more aware of how large the short interest is and who is buying it who is going on the opposite side. I think it surprised a lot of people that, you know, you could get so many people to rally together and put real money, a few names, I think it was, you know, less than 20 names, you know, rally them so significantly. Yeah. So the other story that's gotten a lot of press that I want to talk about as well is Archegos. Archegos? Yep. <laughs> Archegos, I, I knew yeah. I was going to blow that. So Archegos, t- talk to me about that story because it's different. It's a totally different story, but I think this is the more classic kind of hedge fund manager, blow up, bad actor type of situation. Yep. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. The first quarter was really bookended by two very different but uh, fascinating market structure events, right? So the GameStop event was in the early part of the quarter. The Archegos event was at the very end of the quarter. And this one was very different because it it happened on the other end of the spectrum. It was a very large, sophisticated family office run by a, a gentleman who was a well-known hedge fund manager for many years. He was a disciple of Julian Robertson. He actually ran Tiger Asia for a number of years. And What's fascinating about this is he got out of the hedge fund business and became a family office, I think, 10 years ago, and he was able to grow his wealth. And what a family office does is it offers a lot more secrecy in what you do because essentially you're just investing your own money. You're not investing other people's outside money. So the regulatory environment's a little less strict and disclosures are much less onerous on family offices. So Bill Huang is the patriarch of this family office, Archegos. He and his team were, you know, very active traders and put a, put a lot of risk on in the derivatives market, which, you know, really offer 
instruments that allow the manager to use a lot of embedded leverage. And he had a lot of success, you know, for a number of years, uh, grew his assets significantly. And then, you know, in March of 2021, it became clear that he was using excessive leverage, but not only excessive leverage, he had many different counterparties. So he was a client of a lot of the large Wall Street and and large international banks. And so they all wanted his business because it was lucrative. He traded a lot and they earned a lot of fees off of his account. So I think there was a little bit of greed, you know, Wall Street greed, I think, involved in, you know, hey, we've got to get Arcagos as a client. Meanwhile, these banks are not talking to each other and there's no disclosure to show that he was in fact using a tremendous amount of leverage at each of the banks. And when his position started going against him in March, you know, it, it became clear and the banks started talking to each other and it was revealed probably very shockingly that there was a lot of exposure to his book. And I think it was then, you know, who was going to run for the exit first situation. And I believe it's been reported that Goldman Sachs was the first to start selling the positions. And so it was fascinating to see, I mean, these positions were a lot of Chinese internet stocks and some other entertainment stocks here in the U.S., but massive sell-off in these names. And Goldman Sachs got out first, and many other banks got out too late. And we saw billions and billions of dollars of you know, negative earnings reported in Q1 for a lot of these banks. So again, he built significant wealth. I think it's reported up to $20 billion in his family office. It was wiped out in two days. And so that's where bad press, he wasn't a hedge fund manager, but hedge funds historically here and there in the course of time have had this type of scenario happen where, you know, risk management gets out of control, you put on too much leverage, and then next thing you know, your counterparty or, you know, your leverage provider is calling you saying you have to post more capital or we're going to sell the positions. And that's the worst place anyone can be because you're going to be forced to sell at the, you know, the very worst period of time. So again, this it, it did cause some disruption in the markets. I didn't see it really hit the hedge fund industry, but it was a very interesting story in, in the sense that someone could get away with taking on that much leverage. It couldn't happen today, by the way, in hedge funds because of the disclosure requirements and the, the kind of restrictions that each bank has on reporting around hedge funds. So I think there are fail safes, nothing's perfect, but I do think there are some pretty good guardrails around the industry today. So that's a a very interesting point. So in this case, although it was effectively portrayed in the media as kind of being a hedge fund blow up, it it really wasn't. It was a kind of a peculiar situation because it was a family office and they in fact weren't subject to the same type of disclosures that hedge funds are. So, okay, I think that's a, yep. a very important part of, of the story. So, 
Um, yeah, and I think I think family offices are probably going to have some regulatory pressure to have a lot more disclosures as a result of this. Well, I would imagine <laughs> every every big blow up has uh, consequences. So, well, you know, we covered a lot today about hedge funds. I think this was a, a really good kind of introduction to the concept, why they're used, the history. I mean, we co- we covered a lot here, the press. So in closing, Jeff, is, is there anything else that you just want to mention or think we might not have talked about? I think we covered a lot. I think I appreciate the questions. Very insightful. Hopefully I provided enough backdrop to the industry that there's some takeaways that the hedge funds are actually a good thing if they're run correctly. And, you know, due diligence is key. You definitely have to do your work and find, you know, the, the very top managers. And the last thing I would say is that our opinion had always been, and I think I mentioned this, that the industry is very top heavy and the highest quality managers are the ones that you want to be invested with, but they're also the hardest to invest with because a lot of times they're closed or they have very high minimums or they just have, you know, very onerous terms to get into their funds. So it's a lot of work to do and you have to be careful. There are, you know, so many hedge funds, I would say many of them, uh, by and large, probably you know, do a decent job and there are plenty that don't. So they may not you know, deserve the fees that they charge. So you, you have to know what you're doing. And I think that that's you know, why folks you know, hire smart people like Hightower Bethesda. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. I, I appreciate the plug and I would uh, echo your sentiment. There are no shortcuts, much as people would like there aren't, and uh, due diligence is key. So thank you so much for your time today, Jeff, and providing all this great insight on hedge funds. My pleasure. Thank you, Leah. Hightower Bethesda is a group of investment professionals registered with Hightower Securities LLC, member FINRA and SIPC, and with Hightower Advisors LLC, a registered investment advisor with the SEC. Securities are offered through Hightower Securities, LLC. Advisory services are offered through Hightower Advisors, LLC. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities. No investment process is free of risk, and there is no guarantee that the investment process or the investment opportunities referenced herein will be profitable. Past performance is not indicative of current or future performance and is not a guarantee. The investment opportunities referenced herein may not be suitable for all investors. All data and information referenced herein are from sources believed to be reliable. Any opinions, news, research, analysis, prices, or other information contained in this research is provided as general market commentary. It does not constitute investment advice. Hightower Bethesda and Hightower shall not in any way be liable for claims and make no expressed or implied representations or warranties as to the accuracy or completeness of the data and other information, or for statements or errors contained in or omissions from the obtained data and information referenced herein. The data and information are provided as of the date referenced. Such data and information are subject to change without notice. This document was created for informational purposes only. The opinions expressed are solely those of Hightower Bethesda and do not represent those of Hightower Advisors LLC or any of its affiliates. 
Hightower Advisors do not provide tax or legal advice. This material was not intended or written to be used or presented to any entity as tax advice or tax information. Tax laws vary based on the client's individual circumstances and can change at any time without notice. Clients are urged to consult their tax or legal advisor for related questions.